Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the mottos of the Great Reformation of the 16th century was sola fide, by grace alone, by faith alone. By faith alone, that, that was also the main message of Lord's Day 23, which was dealt with here in Amadeel last week Sunday afternoon, where the question was asked, how are you righteous before God? And the answer said, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. An answer that highlights that our justification is only in Christ. That God, despite all our sins and shortcomings, does not count us guilty, but justifies us in Christ. That's the secure anglets of our salvation. The only ground of our salvation, nothing else. By faith, we embrace Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness before God. The only thing that reads there in Lord's Day 23, you must accept that with a believing heart. And even that faith is a gift of God, worked in us by the Holy Spirit. So it's all God's work. Not just so much of ourselves. Nothing. But then you ask yourself, if that is true, how can you reconcile that with what we just read in James? Man is justified by works, not by faith only. Throughout the ages there has been much opposition against to what James writes here. That's why Luther, Martin Luther, had not much appreciation for the letter of James. Letter of straw, he called it once. Since according to Luther, in this letter, the doctrine of being justified by faith alone, as Paul speaks about it in his letters, Romans, Galatians, is totally overshadowed by the fact that, that faith with our works is dead. And so, according to Martin Luther, the letter of James lacks the gospel of grace. We believe that whole reasoning is, of course, a misunderstanding. For a start already, it would be impossible that the Bible would contradict itself. Moreover, the works to which James refers are not the same works as the Apostle Paul is talking about. He talked about people who thought by doing the works of the law, to a certain extent they could still make a contribution to make them acceptable in the eyes of God. Pious achievements of men. But I can tell you this afternoon, brothers and sisters, pious achievements of men have nothing to do with true faith. Pious achievements of men are man-centered. But faith is Christ-centered. And that's what James wants to make clear. But then he says... If you believe in Jesus Christ, then that must also show up in your life. You can say, I believe in God, but we read it, even the demons believe that God exists, and they tremble. Maybe we should tremble a bit more at times, because sometimes we speak so easily about God. Do we still realize that he is the holy God? Not to make you scared, but he's holy, and my life is often stained with sin. Then you marvel that you may go to God in prayer. So the demons believe that. God exists, but that doesn't mean that because they believe that, that they have faith. Their faith must also be visible in the way we serve God. 
And that's what is addressed in Lord's Day 24. It's impossible, it says there, that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. That's what we later on also will sing with hymn 28. By faith we are justified. By faith alone. Works serve the neighbor and supply the proof that faith is living. It reads in that hymn. Now that's the gospel I may minister to you this afternoon. The believer is justified by faith alone, but that faith must also be a living faith. And then we'll see, first of all, what is a living faith? And secondly, how does our faith become a living faith? And then thirdly, that God will also reward such a living faith. So, what is a living faith? The main theme which James addresses in his letter is one should not only be a hearer, but also a doer of God's words. In chapter 2 of his letter, he stresses faith and actions must work together. Faith is completed by what, by, which, by what man does. Your faith is completed by what you do. After all, after all, faith that has no effects on our deeds, faith that does not show up in a godly lifestyle, James says it's barren, such faith. It's dead. It's not genuine. It's not a living faith. As the Lord Jesus Christ said it already in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. James makes it also clear with an example. We read that, chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. He says there, If a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give him the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? You catch someone on the door, he asks something and says, Yeah, I really feel for you. I hope you get warm, but you don't do anything. Is that really... Really showing love to your neighbor? I love the guy. I feel sympathy for him. But you don't give him anything. That doesn't make that, that love real. In other words, we can say all the nice things, but if the love for a person is not accompanied by tangible acts of love, how will the brother or sister ever benefit, benefit from it? That says, James, that's now exactly but faith is without works. It's dead. It's useless. It has no value. They well may say he loves the Lord and serves him, as you sometimes can hear on home visits. Well, if he admonish a person, there's an offer here, don't say that I'm not loving the Lord, but then you can ask, what does it show then that you love the Lord? If we say these things, but does it show in our love, then we make a caricature of our faith. True, genuine faith must produce fruits, must express itself in deeds of love and thankfulness. In the continuation of this chapter, James elaborates on that, mentioning two examples from Abram and Rahab. First, he refers to Abram. He says in verse 21 of this chapter, Was not Abram our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Faith in God caused Abram to do something of which, humanly speaking, one would say, how in the world could Abram ever do that? Sacrificing his own son, and then you have also to take into account that in itself, that's all very hard. Who can understand that? 
But then, this was the son of its God that says, in him you will become father of many nations. In him you will be blessed throughout the generations. Out of him, Abraham knew, the Messiah would be born. So every, you could say the whole Old Testament and New Testament depended on the life of Isaac. And now God says, go Abram and kill Isaac. Offer him to me. And not do that now straight away. That Abram could say, okay, do it and it's over and done with. No, he had a, a three-day journey. And no doubt, during that three-day journey, Satan would say, go home, man. Is that a father who wants you to kill your son? Don't do that. That was a test for, for Abram. Not just overnight and doing over and done with. No, he had three days to think about it, shall I go home or not. But he was obedient. He was willing to sacrifice Isaac and that with his own hands. Personally, Abram had to lay his son on the altar to bind him, to take his knife and slay him. How was Abram able to do that? The answer we read in Hebrews 11. By faith. And that was faith. That's what trusting God was all about. By faith, Abram concluded that God was able to raise Isaac up even from the dead. If that is what God wants, and if the whole of God's promises depends on Isaac, then God knows the way out. I do what God says. That's obedience. You see, we often lack that. We often trust God, but in the meantime, we make our calculations and all of those things. And then we trust God, and then we pray for a blessing. But trust God is 100% trusting God. It will be okay. God will be in control. He will do what is good for me and for the church. If I have to kill Isaac, well, then God knows how to raise him from the dead, for this is the son of promise. See, that, that's, that's what Abram did. And having that immense Having then mentioned that example, we read in verse 22. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. Having mentioned that, so in other words, these works were necessary to bring Abraham's faith to, cli to climax. To show that Abraham had genuine faith in God. Well, that faith, that's faith that pleases God. That's faith that God will approve of. And again, the example of Abram makes it very clear, for at the very moment that Abram took up his knife to slay his son, to kill him, he heard the voice of God speaking from heaven, do not lay your, do not lay your hand on the lad. Do not anything do to him. For now I know that you fear God. Works made his face brought his face to a climax. For now, God says, now I know that you fear God. In all this, James sees the fulfillment of that word which God had spoken to Abram before, namely, that his face was accounted to him for righteousness, and that he was called the friend of God. Yes, because Abram's face was genuine, that is, because it brought forth fruits of love and thankfulness, God counted Abram as righteous. That is, a person with the right attitude towards God. And likewise, it was with Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, the second example mentioned here. Works justified her too when she received the messengers and sent them another way. 
he did so since he feared the God of Israel and believed in his great power. So these two examples, Old Testament examples, that James bases his conclusion which we read in verse 24. It says that you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. I said at the beginning of the sermon, this does not contradict the statement of the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul turns against people who thought that by works of the law they could make himself to a certain extent, as I said before, acceptable in the eyes of God. Pious achievements of man. Paul says, that's impossible. That will not help for your salvation. We are saved by faith alone, not by works. But James, brothers and sisters, addresses a totally different issue. Namely that we, if we are saved by faith alone, what kind of faith should that be? A living faith or a dead faith? If it is dead faith, well, that is useless. You will not benefit from it. So, James is saying, genuine faith must produce good works, good deeds. To say it with the words of the catechism, true faith must bring forth fruits of sacrifice. Moreover, when James speaks about works, he does not refer to works of the law by which man can con contribute to his own salvation, but to works, indeed, by a living faith. Good works, which according to Lord 33, where it speaks about good works again, good works are these which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his honor. Threefold purpose of our good works. See, Paul speaks about achievements of men to fulfill the law of God and feel good in the eyes of God. But our good works should never be man-centered, but always Christ-centered. And, and that's, that's maybe also good to examine yourself. How, how do you look at your, your works? You have these people who can say, for example, oh, look at this, what I do all for the Lord. I think I'm a good Christian. I'm a good reformed person. I'm faithful in the Bible study club. I pray every day. I give my contributions to church, school, Eucalypt, Fairhaven. I tick all the boxes, so to speak. And that should be okay. I'm a covenant child. I'm born in the covenant. God will look upon me with, with pleasant eyes, for I do what he wants. Now, that's not faith. Ultimately, that's not faith. You know what faith is? Faith, you say, Lord, who am I? that I am allowed to do this still in thy service. That thou that not sent me to hell, but that I am here in the church, that I am a covenant child, and that I can do all these things. Lord, that's not me. That's thy work. That's glory to God. The first is man-centered. The other is God-centered. So how, how does it work in practice? Let me try to make that clear as an example. That, that our good works do not earn anything, and yet they are necessary. Take this example. A child, 12, 13 years old, comes out of school, says, Mom, I dearly love you. You are such a good mom, I really love you. Love you. So, after dinner, Mom asks this child, can you do please the dishes? And then, all kinds of rumblings, and, okay, in the end she does it, but not happily. 
You wonder, was that really love? And she said, Mom, I really loved you. It's so easy to say. But you also have to show it. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. But now, the opposite. Say that a child happily does the dishes. Does it mean that she earns mom's love? No. That love of mom was already there for ages, so to speak. But she shows now that she appreciates that love of mom. And does the dishes happily. See, that's, that's what, what faith with works is. And that's what James means. Works make faith perfect. Doing those dishes that child showed, I have real love for mom. Not to earn that love, that was already there. Perfect faith, when we make faith perfect, when we need, do trust God alone and serve him from the heart. And that must become visible in our life. Not just fulfilling your religious duties. Not just going through the motions and ticking the boxes off to get the elder off your back. But also showing throughout the week, in all our daily activities at work, in leisure time, wherever we are, whatever we do, it should show up that our faith is genuine, not just to the outward front. Yes, the proof that faith is living must come out in tangible deeds of love towards Lord in, uh, towards the Lord in every area of life. And then the Lord works that in us, too willing to do for his good pleasure. God himself is working in us. And that brings us to the second point. To mention we are justified by grace alone. Our good works don't add anything to it. And yet faith must be a living faith. Not only hears, but also doers of the words. Salvation by grace alone. Why? Well, ultimately our good works are nothing. Look what it says in answer 62. Where it says, But why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least part of it? Because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect, in complete agreement with the law of God, whereas our best works in this life are all imperfect and devout with sin. That's us. Children of God, and even our best works devout with sin. Even our best works doesn't that cast a shadow over the joy of faith? Sometimes people say, the catechism that makes you only somber. Start with misery. Not anyone is good. And here again, even your best works are devolved with sin. It makes you depressed. But that's not the point of the catechism. The point is that we can't do it ourselves. Also, when we do good works, it has to come from God. And you see that already at the baptism. When a child is baptized, often what we, we learn and what we keep in mind is the water, that's like the water, washes the dirt of my body, and so the blood of Christ washes away the, the dirt of my sin. Full stop. You know, that's only 50% of the story of baptism. Because you are baptized into the blood and the spirit of Christ. Christ has not only given us forgiveness of sins, but he has also given us sanctification through his Holy Spirit. That was what Pentecost was all about. If Christ by his spirit had not worked in you to come to church this afternoon, you would not be here. So you can't take it off like a good work and see, I went to church. From yourself, you would never have come this afternoon. From yourself, you would not be listening this afternoon. 
It's not a minister that has met, maybe have a nice sermon, but it's the spirit who has to open our hearts. You read it in the Bible. And Lydia was reading, uh, listening to Paul, and then it says, see, listen to Paul because the spirit opened her heart. So that's also with our good works. We are, whatever we do, always remains imperfect, defiled with sin. And still, God will delight in what we do. Even though we can see, that could be an example. Maybe that, that child did not do the dishes so well, and mom had to take a few things out of and had to wash it again, but she was delighted that this child did it, showed her love. Well, that's how God looks at our works. He sees the stain. But he has cleansed that in Christ. And after all, what we do at good works, it will be made perfect to the Holy Spirit who already started to work that in us. It's all God's work. As it reads, as it reads in Ephesians 2 verse 10, our good works are prepared by God beforehand, so God's work, so that we should walk in them. So we have to work with it. It's God's work. So the letter shows that although we are saved by grace alone, that does not undo our own responsibility. We must walk in them, in the works God wants to do in our life, and that not to earn anything, but to God's glory, so that God's glory may come to, to its highest point in our life. So it can come in this life, never perfect, but to the highest point in this life. So what it means is, I said it this morning in the sermon, what is our salvation in Christ? Our salvation in Christ consists of three points. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Now, you are justified. That means you have the forgiveness of sins. And now we are on our way to the eternal glory. But in the interim, we have to live to the glory of God. And it's all God's work. He gave the forgiveness of sins. He gave what we need to do good work, sanctification, and he will bring us safely home. If you want it in four words, then our life, what is the life of a Christian? It should be Christ-centered. It should be spirit-filled, sustained by grace, homeward bound. That's what Albert states. What is your life as a Christian? Christ-centered, Spirit-filled, sustained by grace, homeward bound. And it's all God's work. And yet, it does not undo our own responsibility. If I may turn with you to the Canals of Dort, where it is this, it's the same issue with the Armenians, which we had also with the Church of Rome, that, that people could add to their salvation and the Canals of Dort say, no, it's election by grace alone, it's all God's work. And yet, Article 60, if you turn to me, with me to page 572 of your book of grace. Page 572, chapter 3, 4, Article 16, which says as heading, man's will not taken away, but made alive. It says there, man, through his fall, did not cease to be man. God had endowed us with intellect and will, and that did not go away after the fall into sin. 
sin which has pervaded the whole human nature, did not deprive man of his human nature, but brought upon him depravity, spiritual death. Well, also this divine grace of regeneration does not act upon man as if they were blocks and stones, does not take the will and its properties away or finally coerce it, but makes the will spiritual life, heals and corrects its pleasantly, and at the same time powerfully bends it. There you have it. Now we can never work it out completely. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, 12b and 13, I should say, uh, where he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that sounds almost Armenian. But he says, It's God who willing to do for his good pleasure. God has to work it in us. So, redeemed by grace. And yet, we have to live holy lives. Sanctification, which God works is in us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then, our third point, then God will even reward that. Reward, then we think of something we have earned. But we read in the Catechism, it's not earned, but also this reward is by grace alone. And that's why I want to draw attention to the other passage of Scripture you have read, Revelation 14. In this chapter, the Apostle John sees an efficient the Lamb standing on Mount Sinai, and with him 144,000 having his name, and the name of his Father on their foreheads. The sealed multitude of which John had spoken before in chapter 7, then still living on earth, surrounded by enemies, but here in chapter 14, the same saints enjoying the blessedness of heaven. Although the dragon with the assistance of the beast from the sea and the earth had done his utmost to make these saints unfaithful to their Lord, he had not succeeded. To remain faithful towards their Lord and Savior had not been easy for these saints. They had called for patient endurance, but now they are blessed because they have persevered to the very end. Taken by the Lord, it says that in verse 13, taken by the Lord, they may now rest from their labors and their deeds will follow them. Speaking these words, on which I would like to focus for a moment. For they clearly show that the saints are not blessed because of their works. For at first reads, they will rest from their labors, that is, they have inherited the eternal blessedness, thereafter their deeds follow them. That means in heaven God will reward us according to what we have done in this life. But after we have just been justified already, a reward that will be given, as it says in the Catechism, not earned, but as a gift of grace, all God's work. And yet also the Catechism says that you don't make man careless. During the time of the Great Reformation in the 16th century, it was particularly this objection which was raised by the Church of Rome. The doctrine of justification by grace alone makes people careless and wicked. If you are saved by grace alone, well, then you are okay. And that sometimes people in the church as well, they say, well, I'm, I'm saved because I'm a covenant child, I, I'm a church member, I will be okay. Does that make you careless? Because God's given you promises. And he said, I will do it all for you, you don't have, can't do anything yourself, well then you sit back and wait till God does it. So it makes men careless and wicked, the Church of Rome says. But if you read the Bible, then it's just the opposite. Revelation 14 teaches differently. 
First it says, the redeemed find the rest in the Lamb, who by his accomplished work unlocked for them the gates of righteousness. They may rest from their labors, from their hardship, connected with these labors. Redeemed by Christ, they had to follow a difficult road, persecuted at times, but in love for their Savior, they had persevered to the very end by his power from above. Spirit-filled, sustained by grace. Fierce opposition, sometimes even from their fellow members. In his life, they had served the Savior, abandoning many earthly things. In some cases, they even given their life for Christ's sake. Well, Christ had said during, earthly, during his earthly ministry, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age as in the age to come. Eternal life. Luke 18. God will reward our deeds. They will follow us. But there remains a gift of grace. But the gift of grace to which we nevertheless may look forward to this reward. We may even set our hope on this reward. Think of Moses. Hebrews 11 verse 26. Who, as it reads there, Consider the abuse suffered for Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And it, and it says there, for he looked toward the rewards. He looked toward the rewards. Now this had nothing to do with man, human calculations, as we some, sometimes do it. But faith in the Lord, in the same way as faith in Abram, looked at the Lord, trusted him. So that same faith caused Moses to give up a brilliant future as prince of Egypt, making a choice for God's oppressed people. Moses could have much easier. A very wealthy life, he had to do nothing, had it all at Pharaoh's court. But in faith, Moses considered the abuse he would suffer with Israel of greater wealth than all the things he would receive as a prince of Egypt. Why? Since he knew Israel was God's people people from whom the promised Messiah would be born. Does Moses consider the lasting benefit, the benefit of redemption, which God had promised to Abram's seed. He considered this redemption of far greater value than all the wealth of the world. Moses knew one day the Lord would reward him for that choice. He made for Israel. A people despised by the Egyptians, but precious in the eyes of the Lord. Again, that was not human calculation, but pure faith, knowing that God will be the rewarder of those who trust in him. Well, that's also our prospect. Christ-centered, spirit-filled, sustained by grace, homeward bound. God will reward us. When you cling to him, when you live close to his words, in a living faith, then God says to you, I will bring you safely home. This grace has saved us thus far. And we see it. God helps us. How can people deal with things in this life? They do it. Not because they are so good. The difficulties, the trials, the temptations. And sometimes you look back on your life and say, how did it go? How did it ever come through the day? But the Lord was there. He gave what was needed. That's the grace that has saved us far. And that grace will bring us safely home. That's the rewards by grace alone.